I'm Keith Baker, creator of Eberron, and you're listening to Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG talk. This week, Morris and Peter are joined by John Peterson to talk about his new book on the history of Dungeons and Dragons, Game Wizards. In the news, Paizo recognizes the Paizo Workers United Labor Union, Edge Studio announces more Star Wars on the way, more information about the Cowboy Bebop RPG, and more, plus a brand new sketch about what a three-headed demon dog really wants. This week on Morse's unofficial tabletop RPG talk. Today's podcast is sponsored by Brandestock's Polearm Emporium. You can find Brandestock's in Upper Ramsbottom Street in the town of Thornistons, just past Mrs. Cockle's Codpiece Boutique. Brandestock's Polearm Emporium sells a wide range of halberds, glaives, and bohemian ear spoons. Ear spoons? That's not a real thing, is it? Ridiculous. What is this nonsense, anyway? I can't believe I'm reduced to flogging this low-class commoner tap to pay my rent. Anyway, go to Brandestocks for pointy sticks. All the tabletop role-play news. We aim to amuse and we aim to enthuse. And Morris is unofficial tabletop RPG. Hello, 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 and welcome to Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG talk. I am Russ, a.k.a. Morris, or Morris, a.k.a. Russ, and with me this week is... Peter Coffey from the Southampton Guild of Roleplayers. Russ, as ever, it is a delight to be here. I bring a guest, Peter. Ah, uh, a guest? A special guest. Ooh. A guest who is simultaneously at Game Holcon in America and here at the same time. It's amazing. What?! It's almost How like is it done? <laughs> well, he's a game wizard, you see. Did you see uh, so is that like a pinball wizard, but game wizard? <laughs> <laughs> so our guest this week is John Peterson, who I, I know from his blog, Playing at the World, and his book, Playing at the World, but he's recently written... Yeah. Uh, and and uh, he he writes an awful lot about the history of TSR and D&D. Yes. The, the uh, John Peterson co-author on Dungeons & Dragons Arts and Arcana. That John Peterson. And that too, yeah. yeah. Ah, um, and also so on John, the Heroes Feast cookbook. <laughs> that John Peterson. How, how would you describe yourself, John? What would you say you're... Uh... Oh, I'm a meddler in all this. Who, you know, I'm <laughs> yeah. somebody who got a bee in his bonnet years ago about um, what really happened, right? And like, what's up with D&D <laughs> and how all this got yeah. started. And like, uh, ever since then, I've been trying to make as much trouble as possible in the industry. Right. Good, good. I approve. But what, what we'll be doing is talking about TSR and D&D later in the show and diving into your new book, which is called The Game Wizards. But right now, mm. let's do some RPG news. So, okay, I reckon yep. the biggest news this week is, you know, last mm-hmm. week we were talking about how the Paizo workers were unionizing. Yes. As of last night, Paizo sent out a press release saying that they have voluntarily recognised the union and they're looking forward to working with them. I mean, I've got to say that whilst I'm thrilled for the workers at Paizo uh, forming a union and the uh, good things that will hopefully come to the RPG industry has a direct result, what I am most thrilled about about this particular story, and this is a purely selfish point of view, right, is that we're actually in sync with the story so we can actually cover it like it's news. Which normally, because we are about a week later on everything, because <laughs> everything comes out in Seattle time, which is after we've done our podcast. <laughs> it feels fantastic to be able to say, oh, yes, we know about this. It's great. <laughs> it's Sorry. also really good news as well. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, and it, sounds like, then. it sounds like a good first step towards making whatever whatever the internal issues were at Paizo, 
Yes. Improving them and making for a better workplace for everyone. It's amazing. hundred well, percent. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So on is it Tuesday, I think, um mm-hmm. Disband's Treasury of Dragons comes out? Uh it's not already out. I've seen people no, posting about it on uh, Twitter. Oh, uh, you've seen reviews advanced ah, reviews of it, but it yeah, actually yeah. hits stores on Tuesday. So uh D D Beyond have released a free adventure to go with it. Ooh, it's called cool. The White Dragons Hunt. Mm-hmm. And you take on the role of dragons. Yes. And what you are, you're a bunch of dragon babies. Oh. Um, so, um, the white dragon. Like Muppet babies, but dragon again. Yes. Well, yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's yes. like Rugrats, but with dragons, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, a crystal dragon has, um, nicked some of your parent dragon, Corvallatel's Corv- eggs. Mm-hmm. And you, as a party of young white dragons, have to track down the eggs and return them back home. And it's a one-shot designed for about two to three hours. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's like basically wormings, wormlings do labyrinth. The well-known movie. Got uh, rescued. Yeah, I suppose so, yeah. Got rescued her baby but, river. But, but, but there, sister. There, there is no David Bowie. There, well, have you read The Adventure? It's true. David Bowie might be in The Adventure, I suppose. Uh, yes. All sorts of things might be in that adventure, my friend. You I, just don't I, know. I'm willing to bet against it, though. <laughs> oh, I don't know. That seems like a poor choice. Um, <laughs> but I, I just like... Betting against David Bowie is always a poor choice. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, I'm hoping for goblins, but we shall have to wait and see. Yeah. Who knows? There's no possible way to find out, other than just yes. clicking on the link to look at the free adventure, which is an easy way to what? find out. But I refuse to do that. That's too easy. I like. We can't things. have informed comment on this podcast. <laughs> like That's not how we yeah. roll. <laughs> <laughs> um, did we mention the Star Wars RPG stuff last week with Edge Studios or not? Mm, not ringing bells. Not that it means much. <laughs> so last year, no. they announced that the Fantasy Flight Games Star Wars games were being yeah. split off into a sister company called Edge Studios. Okay, yeah. So, uh, Fantasy Flight is owned by Asmodee, or Asmodee, yes. or Masmodee, or however, however you pronounce that. Definitely not Asmodeus, that's <laughs> As not Asmodeus. And also, no. Edge Studios is yes. uh, owned by, by them, and they split the RPG stuff, mm-hmm. the Fantasy Flight games, off to Edge Studios. Mm. They announced that a year ago. Yeah. They also announced it again this week, presumably in case we forgot. <laughs> We might have had things on our minds. Who can say? <laughs> so, yes. So, they have announced again that they, uh, uh, the Edge Studios will be producing the Star Wars RPG stuff. Mm-hmm. They've announced how they're excited with the opportunity to be working on one of the world's most beloved IP in the world. Mm. Nice. Um, they want to follow in the footsteps of FFG's fantastic work over the years while bringing our own vision of what a Star Wars RPG should be, which sounds to me a little bit like it's not they're carrying on. With yeah. FFG's RPG, they're doing a new one. That's what yeah. it sounds like to me. They haven't said that explicitly, but that's... They're doing a version that they like better. That's what they would infer from that. Yeah. I mean, that's fair enough. It's, it's their problem now, Dave. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I, I have Imperial Assault, and I keep on playing the first few missions, but I'm just having such difficulty getting a game group together mm. to to play it. So, yeah. But I hope it's yeah. a very good game. I certainly enjoyed painting the little models. What can I say? I like having little stormtroopers. <laughs> little stormtroopers. They have coloured pauldrons. <laughs> I prefer them to come pre-painted. But I, I understand that. Yes. But you already know that, don't you? 
Yes, yes. <laughs> Your views on the matter are well established. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, let's find out what else there is to talk about. Oh, God, this is a really, really short news week this week, actually. Um, okay, um, I've got a couple of items that have come up. Good, 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 because you've got lots of space to fill. What else have you got? <laughs> I hadn't realised we joined the Phil Space School of Journalism. <laughs> journalism. Okay, uh, I posted a link in the chat for you to look at. This mm. is for a game called Kalimba, the role-playing game which is uh, causing RPG forums to be quite excited. It's an African-inspired tabletop RPG. Yeah, yes. I was going to be putting that in the Kickstarter game this week, but uh, (laughs) I can't now. Oh, well, um, (laughs) I'm afraid it is sufficiently being shouted out that uh, I haven't seen it. Apparently, it's been delivered over seven years uh, by a chap called Daniel Carrasso. Seven years? Wow. Wow. Yeah, I I, I guess that's the problem with working part-time on RPGs because it's quite hard getting making it a full-time job. Mm. Um, he's a Brazilian RPGist who is making an African RPG. Mm. So, yeah, but it's got all sorts of magic, mysteries. It's kind of through it. It's lots of uh, sort of uh, line black and white art. Pencil, yeah, yeah. Black and white art there. Yeah, I, I think it's quite charming myself. It's, oh, uh, no, I, like, I like the style. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a nostalgic mm. style that I enjoy. Just, uh, yeah, yeah. Just, just saying, I just noticed that that's, that's the style. It's cool. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it, it's very good. They've, they've got like a um, whole pile of uh, different character heritages and races. They've got diff- like lots of spells. What system, what system uh, is, it? is it? Is it a D&D jobby or is it, uh, it or something else? It's something called Newton's Nitro plus 2D6 RPG system, hmm. which okay. is based on six-sided D6 mechanics. So six-sided D6s? Six-sided D6s. <laughs> I like those eight-sided D6s. Or the even rarer 12-sided D6s. <laughs> well, at least that <laughs> technically does work, I suppose. Yes, yes. Well, yeah. yeah I, I don't like to point fingers. Uh, yeah, you make a character by distributing points between attribute skills and special abilities. And mm. um, yeah, it looks like it will be fun. Oh, uh, they do have a lot of nice illustrations in the book. I particularly like the little sort of gecko dude. Uh, it's like a crested lizard person wearing scale mail, riding a, riding a war ostrich. A war um, ostrich? A war ostrich. Um, a it, war if you ostrich. Speak, you, I, I mean, I've got to say, I'm going to repeat it again. A war ostrich. A war ostrich, sir. <laughs> Do not make me repeat myself a third time, sir. <laughs> if you scroll down, it's right next to the uh, gorilla wearing the scale mail carrying the giant bone t- and tusk studded club. And um, what I can only presume to be a literal army hand. But don't ostriches famously the bury their heads in the sand at the site of trouble? No, they don't. I thought that, they did. Well, today you have learned something, which is that they do not. <laughs> also, wear, don't mess with ostriches, they will mess you up. Ostriches bury their heads in the sand and kangaroos wear boxing gloves. These are two indisputable facts. Yes, Russ. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, they've got... Oh, uh, what are you saying about an eight-sided D6? Turns out that's what they're using. <laughs> okay, As okay. Uh, it's like a little rolling D6. Um, has in it's a cylinder sort of shape, mm-hmm. hex- hexagonal cylinder. So therefore, it has eight sides. Although two no, of them, you wouldn't expect to say. That doesn't count. That doesn't count. <laughs> I, here I am trying That's to prove right. it's worst. <laughs> okay, so don't use predatory to prove that you're correct. Correct. I will never do this again. <laughs> so I've got some more news about the old Cowboy Beboop role-playing game. Oh, Cowboy Beboop. Mm-hmm. I'm very excited about this. Uh, Tell me all about this thing about back which you into, are the, the world's expert. Yes, they'll be back into my <laughs> extensive knowledge of Cowboy Beboop. Yes. So, um, this game is going to use the Hexis system, which was previously used in a game called Not the End, and uh, a character described by keywords, which yes. are placed in a hive of hexagons. 
in a, okay, and then right. links and relationships make up the character stats. Not quite sure. I'm trying to envision that in my head how that works exactly. People who are familiar with the Hexis system probably know exactly what that means. But um, and are probably rolling their eyes and tutting it at you as the graph has yeah. only fitting and proper. Well, apparently, unlike the not the end game, though, instead of the uh, tokens that not the end uses, it uses uh, a dice pool system with multicolored dice. Ooh. Hmm. The opportunity for more dice, especially multicolored ones, very yes. exciting. And also, you know the uh, well-known, and obviously I'm very familiar with it, uh, Cowboy Bebop Knocking on Heaven's Door um, series. Um, okay. Tell me more <laughs> about when Cowboy Bebop heard Led Zeppelin. Well, yeah. we, should, we, we should not be expecting anything from that. This is only from the original anime. Right, right. So Cowboy Bebop only. Yes, and also not from the upcoming live-action series from Netflix, which yes, I am yes. looking forward to with... Anticipation. Well, it's live action, so you can actually watch that one. I can actually watch it, yes. I'm allowed to watch live action stuff. Yes, and you may learn some intriguing and exciting things. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so that's Cowboy the Boat for you. Cowboy the Boat news. Including how to pronounce the name of the show. But yes. anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> I figure if I say it enough times, it will catch on. That's the plan. I, I find your faith in this touch. Please continue. <laughs> <laughs> so have you heard of the Astral Tabletop Virtual Tabletop? Hmm. I presume it's like Roll20, Fantasy Grounds, The Forge, yeah, etc., etc., et yes. Well, this one yeah. um, had um, one bookshelf behind it, which is the drive-thru mm. RPG. Mm. But the uh, the founder of Astral Tabletop has retired from the company, and oh, they have ceased development. Oh, oh dear. Which is terrible. Um, yes. Yeah. So um, there's a mm. there's a email that was sent to users. Mm-hmm. And it says, unfortunately, even with the growth that Astral has experienced, yes. uh, it has not attracted an audience large enough to be a thriving business. With the landscape for VTTs looking to becoming even more competitive in the near future, Astral's founder, Tom, has decided mm-hmm. to retire from Astral Tabletop to pursue other ventures. Uh, I mean, I expect there to be a huge growth in lots of different uh, virtual tabletops. Until someone pulls ahead of the curve. Yeah, well, it's like, um, just, just from my experience doing the old level up Kickstarter and people asking mm. about, um, virtual tabletops and everyone's yeah. asking about a different one. Yeah. And it's like, this, it seems like there's a lot of them out there at the moment. I mean, oh, right, yes. I think the big, the ones of the biggest market show are probably Roll 20. Um, I've heard of Fantasy Grounds. Fantasy Grounds and Foundry, I think. But yeah. I yeah. I keep calling it Forge, which I can only apologize. It's a metalworking place, and the two have become inextricably linked in my head. I think they do have a forge, which is, I think, like the marketplace is that something else? or something. Oh, I think it's something, something connected or something to do with building modules. For, I don't know. I, but I think I think Foundry and Forge are linked. Or I might, yeah. not, I might even be making that up, but yeah. I don't know. Well, that, that is embarrassing for me. Uh, I do apologize. Again, it's one of those things that there's no possible way to find out. Huh. As we sit here with the internet in front of us, there's no possible way to find out. Oh, no, Foundry. Are you sure it's... Forge VTT. The Forge. The first and only Foundry VTT marketplace. Huh. Okay. There's a GM the Forge, Forge. is a no-hassle role-playing game platform, a hosting service, and so much more, powered by Foundry Virtual Tabletop and uh, unique integration oh. technologies. So there you go. Huh. So you are half so, right. Well, I was mostly wrong. There's a, a GM Forge, which I thought was what they were talking about, but people seem to kind of hate it. So well, I'm at forge uh, forge dash vtt dot com is what I'm looking at. Forge da- so it's called forge. So forge Wait. forge is the hosting so service, and yes. Foundry is the vtt. Oh, okay. As far as I can make out, fight goblins not servers. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so, oh, you have to pay to be GM. Mm, yeah, available to make blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and you've got the found the bizarre, the only foundry VTT. Yeah. Wait, is this the Forge of the Foundry? Right, I've got to try it again. I Sorry. So the Foundry confused. is the VTT. Check. The Forge is a hosting yeah. service. So um it's uh, not like, it's not like um Roll Twenty, which is in your browser and hosted by yeah. Roll Twenty. You've got a you normally you kind of host it yourself somewhere. Right. But this right. is a hosting service where you can host your game. Right, okay. So they work in concert with each other, as far as I can make out. That would explain... I, I agree it's not 100% clear, just looking at the site, yeah. but as far yeah. as I can make out, that's what that is. Okay, because foundryvtt.com. <laughs> oh, what is? Uh Okay, one-time purchase. Oh, okay. This is, well, you know what? This is both different from things I was looking at and thinking was the thing that was under discussion, so... Wow. <laughs> like, so what were you looking at? I, I was looking at um, a thing on Steam, which is uh, Steam, oh, G- okay. yeah, GM Forge virtual no, tabletop, no. which is a standalone virtual tabletop. Else <laughs> it is something else entirely. <laughs> wow, wow. Okay, so I even uh, heard my apologies. One. My apologies to the makers of all of these, uh, especially GM Forge. As I say, I have no played your game. You just have a lot of very bad reviews. So that is Ooh, what I was going on. Ow. Yeah. Ow. <laughs> It's like mostly negative out of 67 mm-hmm. reviews. So well, found, that's pretty harsh, man. Foundry has yes. loads of very, very, very good reviews. They're- Which makes a lot of sense when explained by the love of Pathfinder 2nd Edition players for it, because I hear it supports that extremely well. It seems to me like it's kind of like um, where Roll20 and uh, uh, Fantasy Grounds are yes. both probably the two biggest ones at the moment. Yeah. It seems like the, uh, Foundry is the one that's coming up behind them and it's probably mm. got, is a bit sort of flashier than those two, I think, maybe. Mm. Uh, I, yeah, yes, those would certainly make a lot of sense. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad oh, we can yeah. clear that up. And I'm sure our listeners yeah. are now entirely confused and have no idea what we're talking about. Like virtual tabletops, that's this thing. <laughs> Just we we don't know this. <laughs> that there are ones which literally share the same name. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is confusing. Yeah, yeah. 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 there was some kind of trademark law to help. <laughs> but well, to be to be fair, to be fair, Forge on the Forge VTT's hosting service is different from GM Forge, which is a VTT, and the Forge hosting service runs Foundry VTT. Yes. Of course, they're completely different. How yep. could I have become yep. so foolish as to become yep. confused? I, I, I think I'm going to actually try for uh, Foundry out. It sounds really good from what people have been saying. The only problem with it is, I think, is because Roll20, yeah. you can you can sort of roll up and use it for free, which you can't with Foundry. I think that's the, that's the, that's the barrier, really, isn't it? Yeah, your current killer app for Roll20 is you can, as you say, use it for free mm. for GM and players. Yeah. And also, it's the Beyond 20 extension for Chrome and Firefox, which means that if you have, God help you, D&D Beyond, like I do, then you can just say, oh, I'm just going to click, and it rolls for yeah. you. Yeah. I think, I think Foundry's nice. got a whole load of um, features. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, it is very feature rich. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway, enough of that. Moving enough on. Moving that. on. So last week we mentioned Adventures in Rockigan. Other last week or the week before? One yeah, recently yes, right. we mentioned it. So this that's, was uh, Legends of the Five Rings. Yes. Yeah, so so yeah. it's a five E conversion of Legends of the Five Rings. Oh goodness! Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Oh, uh, nice. Being produced by Edge Studios because it was originally yeah. a Fantasy Flight game thing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Rockigan was the is the setting for Legend of the Five Rings was also used yeah. as the setting for Oriental Adventures 
for mm. the three E, um, mm. which is obviously a, a book name that you're not, not going to see again. But at the time, it was called mm. Oriental Adventures. Yes. So this is this is Adventures in Rock Again. It's yes. it says it's not it's this is interesting. It's not going to replace mm. Legend of the Five Rings as its own RPG, but it's going to serve as a companion system. I don't really know what that means. It means if you would like to get your group to play Legend of the Five Rings and are refused to touch anything that isn't D&D, then you can use this as a way to get them intrigued by the lore and then switch them over seamlessly. I guess so, yeah. Possibly. Yeah. But, or, or maybe that's just me being a cynic. I don't know, Russ. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, this is scheduled for second quarter 2022. Mm-hmm. I am actually interested in this. I like the yeah. idea of a D&D, a, 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 a tastefully and culturally sensitively done D&D Asian-inspired setting. Yeah, yes. I like the idea of that. But mm. we'll have to wait and see. Yes. Um, also, we've got in the news, we have got Green Ronin's uh, Age Creators Alliance. So the adventure game engine is Green Ronin's um, right. house right. system. Which I, I'm really sorry. I thought you said the Aged Creators Alliance. Aged Creators Alliance. No. Uh, I'm like, that's, that's kind of a harsh way to describe some of the veterans of the industry. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. Okay. Not, that's not what I want to say. It's the adventure game engine, right? Age creators. The alive, age creators right. alive. So yeah. the age system, um, it powered Dragon Age and the Expanse RPGs and Modern Age and Fantasy Age and is there a Future Age? Possibly yeah, future probably. Age. Anyway. Um, space, age. space Age. It should do a Space Age. It should be just be called Space Age, yes. It should be called yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the Age Creators Alliance is a <laughs> user content program. So it's basically DM's Guild mm. for the adventure games. Engine okay. system. Yeah. Age system is, yeah, that's like pin number and, um, you know, where the word on the end is redundant. Age system. Right. Because yes. E is engine. Mm. So that's or the adventure ATM game machine. engine yes. system. Or ATM machine. Mm. Yes. Yeah. 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 Oh. Say, no, people don't say ATM machine, do they? They just say ATM. Mm. Well, they say pin machine. number. They definitely say pin if number. If you don't know it's an automatic telling machine, then you might say it's an automatic telling, it's an ATM machine. It's an automatic telling machine machine. Yes. Yeah, well, if you don't know, it sounds for ATM. You have to put you have to put your personal identification number number into the automatic telling machine machine. Yeah. Oh, well done! I'm very <laughs> impressed you managed to say that about someone. <laughs> okay, I couldn't say it again. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I read letter day, sir. Yes. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Shall we see if we can I do have another bit of news. Have I got yeah. another bit of news? I, well, I'm no, saying no, I have another bit of news. Oh, you have another bit of news. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's a Kickstarter that has funded up in Glasgow, of all places. In Glasgow? I know. Let in me just Glasgow? grab the... I know. Well, where are like we up in a... Glasgow? Well, I mentioned it just on the chance that we have British or European listeners who would like to benefit from possibly reduced postage from getting it from the US. Um, yeah, the, the Aegean Mythic Role-Playing Game System. Oh, that it was is... also in the Kickstarter game as well. You've just been, you've been reading up on all the Kickstarters before the game this week. I, 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 I honestly haven't. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> um, this came through because a friend of mine is backing stuff. And I was like, oh, that sounds good. Uh, I mean, I was probably going to get that it was, uh, well, this isn't a D&D setting. Mm. This is, it looks more like a Vampire the Masquerade style D10 dice pool succeeds on an eight ah. plus sort of job. Um, so that is quite nice. It's, Going to have a fairly nice looking hardback book, 300 pages. Uh, it's six by nine, six inches by nine inches. So, mm. you know, like sort of an A5 sort of jobby, but yeah. Um, they have a deluxe edition and so forth with, with, I gotta say, a, a Buckram material cover 
and a bronze gold foil embossment, which Ooh. and gold corner protectors. Do I like, presume it'll be gold like coloured metal. Yeah. It, it is nice. Yeah, Talk about and, fancy um, covers. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw Mongoose Publishing posted some pictures of their new deluxe Traveller Cornwall book. And not only is it like leather at cover, the corners mm. have got those little, what do you got those little metal bits you put on the corners of a yeah, yeah. book? Yeah, uh, corner protectors, I guess. I know, but it looks well flashy. It looks really nice. No, I, I just, I just, have you, I've got a picture of that because I need to draw over it. Okay. Oh, oh, hello. Pretty, isn't it? They're only making 300 of them. They're corner Ooh. protectors. That's what those things are called. So it uh, includes a faux leather cover, metal corner protectors, a double oh. ribbon. Nice. Printed end papers of two different designs Ooh. and rounded silver edged pages. It's going to cost £100 or $140. Available for pre-order from October the 22nd. When is that? Mm-hmm. Today. 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 Oh. Shipping quick, quick, in January. Copies. <laughs> Shipping in January, but only yeah. 300 copies. Oh. So when Oof. they say limited edition, they mean limited edition. They are not kidding about that. They're no, not is. kidding at all. Only 300 copies. I mean, are there any left still? Goodness. Good. Don't I? Uh, uh, teaser trailer. I don't know. It is a very pretty book, but mm. I don't know. I, I'm like, oh, the end pages. Oh, it's got like looking up from a moon of Jupiter at a planet with a big red spot. And you got some starships flying around. Ah, mm. oh, it's always the way though. It's like you always want to, you always want to, you, you end up running the games you want to play. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Hey, do you, have you seen the Monster Encyclopedia, um, series on, on EN World? So it's been going on Monster for it's, it's, it's by um by someone called Echo Hawk, and he's been Ooh. doing it for a few years. And basically, he's oh. going A to Z, and yeah. for each one, he takes a monster and then he yes. writes a very, very long, detailed essay about the monster's history throughout D and D, going back to the nineteen seventies. And he wow. researches it, and he yeah. gets pictures and oh, all okay. sorts of stuff. Uh, it's really, really detailed. But anyway, the reason I brought it up was mm. because he's now on you from his oh. Um It's like once every sort of like four or five months or two, one, maybe six months. Yeah, right, this right, right, is yeah. a very long term project. And each one yes. obviously takes ages to do. But he's reached you, yeah. Umber Hulk, and I can give you a link. And as you can see, it really is in depth and it's got pictures of Umber Hulks from different D&D books going back over the years and re- everything's <laughs> referenced and cited and uh, it's, it compares the stats from different, uh, down at the bottom. There's a chart comparing the stats of the Ember Hulk from original yeah. D&D, BECMI, first edition, second edition, third edition, fourth edition, and fifth edition. It's like such a Ooh. awesome column. Wow. Combat tactics. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. uh. I'm, I'm scrolling and scrolling. I haven't got it out of second edition yet. Oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, I know. Spade it to third edition. I know. Oh, I recognize that bad boy. So yeah. much hard work goes into these. <laughs> I mean, uh, there's a there's a list of all of them. So they started at Arapokra, and then he's mm-hmm. got as far as Umberhulk so far. So V W X Y and Z. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So V. I'm trying to think what V vampire possibly W uh, Wyvern for for, for, Jan, for January Wyvern or werewolf W X would be uh, Zorn for for, for January, It looks like his next maybe. I don't know. Or maybe he's done Vajanoi as well. Has he? Or that's something different. I don't know what that is. Huh. Well, he's got, got, got on the list. He's, he's only got, got as far as you on the list. Yeah. Oh, okay. He's covered for for January because they're a close aquatic rev- relative of the Umberhulk. Oh, that is very inclusive. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, he, he did Goodness. the Trask, uh, well, last month, actually, in September. So he brought wow. two out quite quickly. So we did the Trask last month. And then the Scarecrow was, mm. yeah, quite a long time, a couple of years ago, was the previous one to that. This just keeps going. I know. It's, it's, it's a fascinating. God, blimey. So much detail. I'd all meticulously yeah. researched and cited. Blimey heck. Yeah. Do you want me to know anything about the Umber Hulk or any of those other 21 or so, 22 or so monsters that he's yeah. covered? That is basically the place to place to do that. Let's look at You're the list. Wrong. So what's, what's the full list? Let's have a look. So he's got, have a look. The full list is Arakokra, Barghest, Katoblapas, Droida, Etin, Flumph, Galibdur, Hook Horror, Ixitsach, uh, that one, Jackal, <laughs> Kraken, <laughs> Lamia, Myconid, huh? Nightmare, Otiag, Periton, Quickling, Remaha, Scarecrow, Tarask, and Umberhulk so far. Nice, nice. Oh, and the comparative stats at the bottom. Yeah, yeah, throughout, throughout the editions. So I thought it was nice oh. to give, give that a shout out because that is. That's, that is, a, that is that an is, incredible piece of that's work. That's a thing of work, that is, yeah. yeah. Wow, the reference to this itself just go on. Yeah, that, yeah amazing. Hmm. Uh, is this by? This is... Uh, Echo Hawk. Echo Hawk. Mm. Okay, that's, that's what we know him as. Great job, Echo Hawk. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, oh, guess, guess what? Guess what? Went past 400,000 last night. Uh, coronavirus in the UK. No, sorry. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. No, no. Uh, oh, did your Kickstarter? Is your Kickstarter doing quite well? Oh, yes, it is doing quite well. Doing Wait, when you say four hundred thousand, do you mean four hundred thousand dollars? Four hundred thousand pounds. Four hundred thousand pounds, because I believe it has passed the half million mark in dollars, on day fifteen. Yeah. So, in, yes. so in pounds, it's four hundred seven thousand four hundred thirty-five. As I look at it now, in yeah. dollars, uh, it is. Uh, hey Siri, what's four hundred seven thousand pounds in US dollars? Four hundred seven thousand pounds is five hundred sixty thousand nine hundred fifteen US dollars and eleven cents. There we go. That's what it's done. It's good for me. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's got fourteen days left to go. Yes. Yeah, I'm uh, quite excited. We previewed the Ranger this week. Yeah. Um, How How is the Kickstarter doing according to your predictions? Spot on. Is on track. Spot on. Yeah. 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 My predictions are pretty good on this. So I uh, I did this thing where um, I looked at the three big Kickstarter prediction uh, mm-hmm. sites. So it's KickTrack, Cake, and Backerkit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, KickTrack is still ludicrously high. Yeah. Cake has dropped down to something more in the right ballpark, mm. and Backertrack is still pretty much on point. So I think, generally speaking, KickTrack just ignore. That's the that's the one that's wildly off. Backertrack yeah, yeah. appears to be the one that is more realistic. And takes into okay. account the actual shape of a Kickstarter curve. Okay, so Backertrack isn't telling you what you want to hear, it's saying how all it is. Track, all Kicktrack does is looks at what you did yesterday and assumes you'll do that every day. Uh, and that's all it okay. does. That's its algorithm. It's rubbish. Oh, yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we had, we, had a bit of a sp- so we had a bit of a spike yesterday because we hit 400,000. And when you hit a stretch goal, obviously um, yes. a, a thing unlocks. And There's then, a lot of buzz. And then more people... Back, so you, when you hit a stretch goal, you get mm. a little bit of a spike. But then, back uh, kick, uh, uh, kick track assumes that spike is just what you're going to do every day, which obviously you're not going to do. Oh, damn me! Damn but anyway, me. that's sort of behind the scenes stuff. But anyway, we did preview the ranger. It's getting some good feedback yes. on the forums. I'm pleased to say people seem to well, like it. Well, damn straight, we had we had Anthony on, and he um, absolutely sold it to me. Yeah, I have to say it's a thing of beauty. Thing of beauty. Yeah, and the narrator screen was unlocked as well. So. 
Oh, you can now get the narrator screen. But we also, I, I've seen some of the previews for that. I'm very excited. That's going to be possibly one of the more useful things for a DM. Like, there's just some, so much good ideas gone on to that mm. screen. It's like yeah. all the really tricky things. What about the Gate Pass Gazette? Uh, You've seen that, haven't you? I did see the signs for it. The, oh, Gate that, Pass Gazette. That is what we're hoping to unlock next. The Lycanthropy Snurgy Feature. Mm. Synergy Feature. <laughs> Yes, yes, that's what it says <laughs> on the graphic, unfortunately. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so anyway. like uh, like rules, the Artificer yes. class, the Jabberwock, and the Construct Heritage. Ooh, wow. I mean, if you make 600,000, that's going to be quite quite a lot of money. Mm. I mean, this is pounds, obviously, not dollars, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we've already got a reference, we've got a vampire, and yeah, in the racer screen, so mm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's a good bit of news. I can't say this is like breaking breaking your records as well because you don't normally do uh, this many stretch goals. Uh, no, but I mean, obviously, the stretch goals are being very careful with, and nothing is going to delay the core delay stuff. That, that that's still that's still predicted for a maximum of thirty seconds after the uh, Kickstarter is closed. Well, wait, that, that before, before that, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I said a maximum thirty seconds. I'm giving you time to like have a bit of a woohoo. I don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Possibly a small jig before you press the button. Although you can wait till after. Then, fair play to you. We've got a little bit more news to report. It's just literally just arrived. Okay, breaking news. Right, we need like the whole like urgent news coming in. Guess what yeah. has just arrived in my inbox? What has just arrived in your Free inbox? Pre-orders for the greatest game product ever. The one that I've been hankering after all year. Is this the thing with the tricorder? The tricorder. <laughs> the tricorder. Oh, no, it is the tricorder. You can now pre-order it. Yes, oh, yes. man. Oh, I am so excited. Oh, it is. Go on, make a guess without looking. How much do you think it is? Mm, $250. £69. Oh. Buy with that's... Apple Pay. I am doing this live on the show. I am buying that's... this tricorder. Oh, that's processing. Affordable. Processing. Ooh. Yeah. Verified contact. What's my phone number? Oh. <laughs> really? Yeah. So where would one buy a tricorder? Uh, from, I will pages. give you the link. There you go. I've bought it yeah. now. I now am the proud future owner of a tricorder <laughs> pot set. <laughs> oh, this looks so good. So, uh, this is what you get. You get uh, the Star Trek Adventures Digest Edition Core Rulebook, yeah. styled after the original series. The Keyhole yeah. of Eternity, which is a three-part campaign set during Captain Cook's five-year mission. Thirteen mm-hmm. pre-generated characters, including the crew of the USS Lexington and eight original series characters, Kirk, Spock, Uhura, McCoy, Scotty, Sula, Chekhov, and Nurse Chapel, and statistics for the mm-hmm. USS Enterprise. Ooh. Five 20-sided dice with a custom captain's tunic design, ten six-sided challenge dice, six momentum mm-hmm. to- tokens, 26 thread tokens. And, of course, the box mm. and a fabric strap that lets you wear it like a tricorder over your shoulder. Oh, I am so excited. Yes, yes. This will be mine. Oh, my. Oh, yes. yes. I don't know when you actually get it, but I pre-ordered it. In the future. At some point <laughs> in the future, yeah. 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 I am so excited. Yes, you should be. This, this is a pre-order days. currently expected to ship in quarter one, 2022. There we go. Quarter one, okay. 2022. Oh, Right, so we're talking about Kickstarters. Shall we just shoot through a few Kickstarters then? We don't have we don't have oh, a guest yeah, yeah. here, so we'll just uh, see what's there. What exciting, what exciting Kickstarters did you have available? Well, one I just backed this week was Iron oh, Kingdoms okay. Borderlands and Beyond. 
Wow. So, yes. So Iron Kingdoms, they do, they, it Steam was. Steam Jacks. Yeah. So originally Iron yes. Kingdoms came out in the early 2000s as a trilogy mm. of adventures for D&D third edition. Okay. And then later they spun it off into their own game system, the Iron Kingdoms game system. Right. Yeah. And then in recent last couple of years, they've come back to D&D with fifth edition versions of the Iron Kingdom setting. Mm-hmm. So this is this is a supplement for that, but you don't need the original Iron Kingdoms setting book. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this sounds re- very very cool. I got to say. Mm. Um, yeah, I backed. I I I was one hundred percent interested. Uh, back all uh, oh, getting back about oh, 10, 10 to fifteen years ago, I had the opportunity to play an Iron Kingdoms game. I was very excited. It was a fourth-ed game. I had my character. It was all made up, and there was a free party, free player party. And one of the players decided they were going to do PvP for the whole time. Mm. Nice. And everyone else was like, but why though? Yeah. Just... Why must, Why do you have to be this way? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that could be yeah. annoying. So that, that was deeply annoying. Mm. Yeah. Okay, what else have we got? We've got a Tome of Spell Holding, which is a spellbook-shaped Woo! box with a magnetic yes. latch and a tray that holds 22 spell chip tokens. And you use these tokens hmm. to count how many spell slots your mage has each day. So as you, hmm. as you use a slot, you just discard a token, I guess. Does it have one of those, like, uh, baseball card slash top trump style or Magic the Gathering style, like, little card holders? So you can take your spell cards, hold spell, spell cards, and whack them in as well. Don't know. Oh, that's It's not a thing that I know. There's like... I, no, no, but like, it, it, but you understand, like a, a, a like a sheet, an A4 sheet or whatever of card sleeves, so you could put no, no, your spell cards in. That, no. Oh, come on, opportunity missed. No, no, like no. that's just like the perfect physical reality of having a spell book. It's, like, ah, it's got like I a little. It's got like a dry erase no. character sheet on the inside of the lid. Oh, dry erase so, character so you, sheet. Bold choice. So yeah, have you have had the box and it flips open the inside of the lid. It's your character mm-hmm. sheet, and then the box itself yeah. is all your tokens, which are your spell slots. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's nice, it's nice enough. I, think, I don't think it's a terrible idea. I quite like it. I, I didn't say it was a terrible idea. Your tone and your expression did. said it all. I, I, it's just like, I was hoping to have it all in one place. It's like, got my spells, got my tokens. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is all I need to do stuff. Yeah. Uh, so for Savage Wars, you can get Holler and uh, Appalachian Apocalypse. Yes, I did see that. I, oh, so tempted by that. Late 1800s to early 1900s, mining and logging and industrialization going on. The owners Ooh. are more dangerous and they're working with dark powers and killing people. And it's up for the yes. residents of the valley to fight back, reclaim, reclaim the land and save the world. Yeah, yes. Well, I, I, like relatively recently, because I'm very, very behind the times of current events, have just finished watching Justified, which is uh, Timothy Oliphant, who you'll recognise from The Mandalorian, mm. and possibly if you've seen Deadwood from there as well, playing a marshal mm. in the US Marshal Service. And, and uh, a very, very said, bad diehard film. Really? Mm. Four? I want oh. to say four. He's the bad guy in four. Was in- oh, goodness. Stop. I didn't recognise him in that. Yeah, it's not a good film. <laughs> it's fair it's fair oh uh, yeah um so that's it in kentucky which is appalachia and it's full of like disused mines which i thought would be perfect mm. for a dnd setting yeah wander around here yeah lots of, okay. lots of lots of old mines what could what could go wrong nothing could go wrong. so what about mutated monsters mutated monsters yeah um is it a bestry for mutants and masterminds uh, no it's for fifth edition 120 new oh. monsters 
Hunter okay. magic items. Some new subclasses yep. are monster layers. Uh, new subclasses are monster layers. Monster slayers. Layers. Right? Oh. Where they okay. live. So in the lair. Oh, okay. There are new subclasses and monster layers. Yes. Right. Yes. New subclasses okay. so are monster layers. That's what I said. Do, do the monsters get the subclasses? Um, I don't know. Let's have a look. Um, you get- I'm so confused by this word thing. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> evolve your fifth edition campaign with mutated monsters. Challenge your players yes. with brand new mutant versions of classic fifth edition creatures or create uh, your own mutant creatures with our new mutation decks. This collection nice. of mutated monsters and mutation decks gives your game yeah. masters a whole new way to create unique encounters. Yeah, love it. Oh. There you go. That's what that is. Anyway, I shall look forward to it. Yes, uh, Goblonia. Oh, I like the look of this one. Goblonia. Is it for it's about goblins. Is it the world of goblins? <laughs> Victorian era goblins, fairies rule the world, and oppressed goblins. You are Man. goblins rebelling against the patriarchy. <laughs> Why must you do this to my wallet every week, Russ? Why? Why must you be like this? <laughs> you play as a harebrained oh. goblin on a mission to free all goblins from the horrors of the fairy rule. A quirky game with an original system. Ah, it does sound It does sound kind of cool, yeah. It was fun. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I like the look of this one as well. There's a couple I like. The oh, yes. Our Haunt. Right, I'm going to... Let's, play, let's briefly our play the game. Haunt. What do you reckon Our Haunt is? In the middle of our house, our haunt. <laughs> yeah, what do you, what do you think yeah, it is? Uh, our haunt is it as in our as in belonging to us? Oh, you are. Yes. Oh, you are. Yes. Our haunt. Um, I guess it's, it's not sort our of haunt like take... someone's initial, Mister Mister Our Haunt, or Ars Magica, or or that. No, which, it's not which that is nothing to with us having magic. No. no. Anyway, uh, no, our haunt. I guess that would be a game where you sort of play as ghosts, and you're presumably I don't know maybe defending your mansion from people who are trying to take it over and develop it. Well, so, um, if we were playing the Kickstarter game, you'd have just won a million oh, points. Oh, you're tr- <laughs> but we're not oh, playing yeah. it. So, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, you play a ghost family haunting a house. Mm-hmm. That sounds kind of fun. Yeah. Have you seen the TV series Ghosts? I have, Comedy. Yeah. I've watched a couple of seasons. I don't love it, but it's watchable. Yeah, yeah. Like, eminently so. Uh, yeah, it's quite quite jolly. Mm. It's sort of, um, oh, what was that? Oh, cracky. It had a... Uh, had a bunch of it was on children's TV. It had a bunch of ghosts, including a jester. Uh, rent a ghost. Rent a ghost. Mm, thank you. Yeah, years yeah. and years ago. Yeah, let's yeah. go back a bit. Yeah, yeah. It, it's rent a ghost for adults. I feel. Yeah, yeah I guess <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right, Haunted Hill Academy. Nice. Um, obviously, an academy which is on a haunted hill. <laughs> uh, you got school children, spirits. Uh, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, your characters in a haunted skill school dealing with supernatural beings, designed for two players. <laughs> anyway, there we go. Ah, here we are, Rufus. The gates of hell. Our journey is near its end. Our epic quests will soon reach its climax, friend wizard. I can feel Zargaz, my holy sword, tingling with anticipation. Oh, indeed, Rufus. Just think of all those demons you'll spite. Ah, it is a fine day to be a paladin. The gods of light will smile upon me this day. We have a final challenge to overcome before we pass through these accursed gates. Indeed, the foul demon Cerberus, the two-headed dog, guardian at the entrance to hell. Look, here he comes now. A truly fearsome sight. 
Draw your mighty sword, Sargas Rufus. Today you shall smite a fiend. And ready your wand, my wizardly companion. Your sage magic shall swing the tide of battle. See the poisonous spittle, the jagged claws, those glowing red eyes filled with so much. Ah, Rufus? What bothers you, Sir Mage? What? What is the demon dog doing, Rufus? He, uh, uh, he appears to be uh, sitting. And wagging his tail, if I'm not mistaken. This is quite strange. Is it some foul, hellish deception? What is he staring at? I think he wants your wand. My wand? Yes, your, your wand. The priceless Argamator, wand of ensorcement, forged in the fires of the Third Age, blessed by the gods of light and wielded by the great Archmage Ilmonster in the Wars of Alliteration. Yes, uh, I think he thinks it's a stick. Thinks it's a stick? Yes, he, uh, he wants you to, uh, uh throw it. Throw it? Yeah, yes, I think he wants to play fetch. Play fetch? See how his tail wags. See him pant and stare at you bleedingly. See how his paw is slightly raised, ready to spring after the stick. Argometer is no stick. Well, technically, it kind of is. It's the single most powerful artifact of the Arboreal Empire. I quested for years to recover it from the clutches of the great dragon king, Gilmathrax. Yes, and now Cerberus would like to play fetch with it. I have never been so insulted in all my life. Well, I mean, if it will save us a dangerous battle with a fearsome foe. Uh, 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 are you telling me you're, you're siding with this thing? I'm not siding with it, per se. If I understand you correctly, you propose, sir, that you want me to play fetch with Cerberus, the demon dog of hell, by throwing the great and powerful wand Argumator for him to chase? Well, uh, yes. Fine. Fine, I'll do it. Then our journey shall continue. Well, until we meet the second guardian of the gate. Second guardian? I only ever heard of Cerberus the demon hellhound. <laughs> you never heard of Smooshy, the demon feline? The demon feline? Indeed, we'll need something to distract the beast, lest it rend us limb from limb. But, but, what do we have to distract such a force of unnatural malevolence? That holy sword of yours is very shiny. Hey, so Peter, I was uh, I was walking down the road the other day, and uh, I saw this bunch of really cool, good-looking people. Cool, good-looking. That could only be our patrons. Yep, man, I have never seen such a well-informed debonair bunch in all my life. Yeah, right. You know, why is that? I don't know. You tell me. Well, if I was forced to speculate, I guess it's because they listen to our top-secret, super-exclusive bonus episode every week. Bonus episode? What? Yeah. 
Each week, our patrons get an extra half hour or even more of extra content that nobody else gets to hear. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Where can they find this? Oh, it's pretty simple. You just head over to patreon.com slash Morris and pledge a monthly donation. Anything from a dollar to whatever you think we're worth. Huh, I did a, uh, a scientific calculation once just to see how much we're worth. Oh, yeah. How much? Uh, you probably don't want to know. Probably for the best. Anyway, if you, if you enjoy our podcast, please head on over to patreon.com slash Morris and, you know, just pledge a little. That's patreon.com slash Morris. And thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do this without you. I reckon we could. Shh. Right, so now I think it's time to start talking about John's work, talk about uh, his new book, and all about early TSR. So, John, um, first of all, before we dive into this, because we've been talking about TSR a lot in recent episodes, I would just mm. want to make sure that people understand <laughs> that when we talk about TSR here, we're not talking about the same TSR that has dominated the news cycle quite a bit recently. Yes, I've loved you reading your taxonomy. <laughs> just leave them alone, Russ. They're dead. They're dead, Russ. <laughs> No, I, I loved your taxonomy. It was almost a monster manual of like the different versions of TSR. Um, I, I, even I get confused by it now. I've, I've just decided that it's like TSR 42.5 or something now. I don't know. But the TSR we're talking about is not the TSR that has been um, controversial in the news recently, but the, ori- the actual original TSR. Yeah. The original TSR. No, no relation. The, the thing that was originally just tactical studies rules, just a little mm, partnership yes, of a couple of people ooh. who hoped to put out some war game booklets, maybe had some cool ideas about like dungeons and things like that, mm. which mm. then became a company, uh, TSR Hobbies, and then mm. eventually became TSR Incorporated. And mm. uh, that one lasted into the 90s. So, yes. Yeah, yeah. Up, at, up until Wizards of the Coast bought them. That is indeed true. Yeah, yeah. So, what, what started you? Into yeah, what what made you decide you wanted to research into the history of D and D and TSR and write so much about it? Because I yeah. I'd say you're probably one of the world's you know ex, you know first experts authorities. On, on authorities. That's the word I was looking for. Authorities yeah. on 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 the on the topic. What yeah. what was it that yeah. attracted what, you to? What that? got you mad about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it really was after Playing at the World had come out. Um, I read a book called Playing at the World that came out in mm. 2012 that really was a deep dive into pretty much anything I thought had the slightest influence on D&D. Right? Right. Like, uh, yeah. and it, but it really it ran, it runs out of steam in like 1977, right? So mm. it, it doesn't look much ahead into this. And it was actually what got me started on this. There were, um, you may recall, right after Playing at the World came out, a couple of D&D documentary projects that had started up and were looking at more of kind of the, the scope and line of where D&D went. And it was really through mm. one of those projects that I learned that there was some court data about mm-hmm. what had happened in 1985, 1986, right. when there was litigation, yeah. uh, but obviously mm. with Lorraine Williams, with the Blooms, with Gygax. And this seemed interesting. So I went down to the Elkhorn County Courthouse, which is not far Mm. from Lake Geneva. This is the place where all of those court records were stored. And at the time, at least, they would let you photocopy um, like anything that was in these court records. And so Mm. I just went in and photocopied as much of that as I could, started Mm -hmm. reading it, and started seeing a story. And that story wasn't quite the same 
as the story、mm. that like Gary Gygax、yeah. seemed to have been telling about this, especially in his later years. And in fact, Ian World is host to、uh, a great number of threads, right?、Um, where、mm. Gary kind of expressed his、mm. his recollection, we'll say, yeah, of yeah. like how all that went down. And you know, when I looked at the disparities between you know that, that were emerging from just the things I was reading from his、mm. like sworn testimony, the Blooms's sworn testimony,、mm. things like right, that, right, yeah, yeah. I decided to write this piece. It was called "The Ambush at Sheridan Springs."、Um, which I put up on Medium in 2014, and it just tried to show mechanically a couple of pretty simple. Question、uh, answer a couple of pretty simple questions, right? Like, how did he lose control of the company? Who owned、mm. how many shares? Like, you know, just right, mechanically, right. how did he get outvoted? So that's really when I started,、mm. and then you know, a lot of people liked it. Like,、um, you know, it was on Mark Andreessen, the venture capitalist. Retweeted it, right? Like, I mean, right, you know,、right. it got like a lot of attention, which made me think there's probably an appetite for that. So, with my、mm. typical work ethic and speedy delivery, you know, seven years later, <laughs> I have now, <laughs>、um, I've now、yeah. delivered a book、Maybe、about like, it. Yeah, yes,、right. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, the amount, the amount of research and the detail you go into. I mean, you know, just the first step of going along to the court and 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 copying those records, I guess, is something that most people wouldn't do. So,、mm. I think that's what makes you know a lot. Of your research stand out is the way you've gone back to the original sources rather than relying on people's recollection many years later. And I think I was talking to Shannon Applecline about this, and、uh, he、mm. said much the same thing. That generally speaking, people's own recollection of the time is a lower authority, sort of source-wise, ranking source-wise, than like a contemporary like document from the time. Just because people's recollections, a I guess. Uh, are faulty because that's、mm. just how you know how the, how the mind works. B people have their own spin on things always,、uh, and you know if you ask two different people what happened, you will always get two different stories. So is that kind of your philosophy as well? Always believe the document over the person. I, I wouldn't say it's always. Believe the document over the person. I mean, you know, I, I don't think of people as sources. I think of things、mm. people say as sources. Yeah. And there's the things they said in 1973 in a letter that I can point to. There's things that they said in an interview in 1978. There's things that they said, you know, at the 30th anniversary when everybody was super interested and they were being interviewed about these right, things、yeah. and like,、yeah. you know, and so I, I I look at all of those as sources. And yeah, I, I just sort against them usually by if if I have like a piece of correspondence that shows a work in progress at a time that just mentions、mm-hmm. offhand, okay, this is what we're doing right now.、Uh, you know, a letter from Guy Axtarnison about this, and it's at a particular、mm-hmm. date. I do find that more compelling. Yes, than thirty、yes. years、yeah. later when people said, well, well, really, what was the sequence of events, and when did it happen?、Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if if there's a disparity between them, you know, I'll cite. The letter that you know from the time that sure, was before、yeah. people were self-consciously trying to mint history, right?、Mm. As somebody in the history minting business, you know I understand the the perils of this, right? Like all the possible ways that bias can be introduced, and you're you're constantly red teaming yourself. You're constantly、um, asking is、red、this、teaming? over red? You know, blue team, red team. This is when you. Um, I, I guess it's a term from originally、uh, situational wargaming, like in the military, where any idea you come up with, you have a blue team for. You imagine the red team attack、mm. on it,、mm, right? Right, right? Like, what is there a way the source could be interpreted differently? Like, you know, right, is there、right. something I'm missing in this, or is there a way I can read it where it works with what people said later? And generally speaking, you know, when I do find those things, I'm happy to go with what people remember later, right? 
I mean, if I can find that, like, there's even enough wiggle room to allow uh, the story to be compatible, especially with the consensus of a Mm. number of people who were involved at the time. I mean, I I take consensus very seriously. But then there are also points where, you know, and you see this in Game Wizards, for example, people have said forever that the original time that uh, Gary Gygax and uh, met with Dave Arneson and Dave McGarry when they came down uh, from the Twin Cities to Lake Geneva Mm. was in the autumn of 1972. Mm. And just from their direct correspondence at the time, which I've been able to review, that just doesn't work, right? Right, right. That time they came down was in February. And we know that because they... And and you know that because the records literally, yeah. Yeah, they they just literally say it. And like, you know, and and then you see the first letter from Gygax after they came down where he's like, wow, that was amazing. I've started this new thing called Greyhawk, you know, like, (laughs) I mean, that just doesn't work. And and so, yeah, I mean, when you encounter things like, even though everybody, including my book, Playing at the World, you know, Mm. no exception to this, right, went with that consensus that that November Mm -hmm. date was right. Um, when you see evidence that just seems overwhelmingly to um, mm. invalidate that, you can't, I mean, mm. I, what, what am I, you know, you have to invalidate it, right? I mean, you have to yeah, go back and yeah. say, I was wrong. Yeah. Mm. So they're going to more from like a big picture kind of thing where the sort of general, I guess, mythology of it that, that people, that people repeat a lot is, um, you know, Gygax created the game along with Arneson. Um, lost control of the company later. Evil Lorraine Williams came in and ousted, um, Gygax and so forth. But, um, is there, is there, um, from, from what, from what, from what I hear is that, uh, Lorraine Williams comes across maybe slightly better in your book than you might expect. Is that fair to say? I mean, I certainly treat everyone like they're rational actors who are yeah. in, a, mm. in an environment where really an unprecedented business environment, right? Where mm. nobody has any blueprint to work from of what's worked mm. in the okay. past, right? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, yeah, I, I do try to view her as someone who came into the company with good intentions, saw mm. positive things in the company. She didn't come in like, oh, I'm going to screw all these guys over. Right, right, right. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, she came That'd in. That would be a terrible idea to spend your money, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she came in as a prospective investor who mm-hmm. was, you know, uh, Gary was hoping would be able to help them get out of their financial difficulties. Mm-hmm. You know, she looked at the books, she assessed the situation, she very carefully watched the way that Gary and, and the Blooms were negotiating the Blooms' exit from TSR, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's clear she did not think that Gary was acting um, responsibly in that, right? right? And, right. And, and that she didn't feel like he, had, he was realistically interacting with their creditors, with their banks, things like mm-hmm. that. And, um, you know, she intervened, I mean, um, and she intervened in part, you know, because she was being asked to invest seriously in this company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, you know, from that investment, she wants to realize what she can. So Mm. in that sense, yeah, I I imagine, I mean, she, she certainly comes off so much better than, you know, this horribly, let's be blunt, misogynist, right? Mm. Like story Mm. about her that has been um promulgated yeah forever. i mean that's, that's kind of like the popular story that's been around for like decades now isn't it but mm. obviously there's a lot more nuance to it than than the mythology allows for absolutely yeah so what period does the book cover mm. so it, it, i mean it's focused the way the book's organized there's a first part that just kind of like sets up a game, right? Um, mm. The game of the game wizards, kind of, that explains yeah. what happened really from 1970 up to 1975. Right, and this right. was a point when this really was, I mean, the, the original TSR partnership was not like a company that we would think of like some, like an entrepreneurial venture, 
that someone thought yeah. they were going to make real money from. I, you know, yeah, it wasn't like a Silicon Valley startup. Sort of yeah, it, it's, yeah, it wasn't. This was yeah. like, we have some hobby rules. Previously, Gary had obviously been publishing those through a company called Gaiden Games. When mm. Gaiden became defunct, he had a lot of stuff, including D&D, but not just D&D, that he still wanted to see published. Mm. And so, you know, he wanted a, a place to publish those. And, you know, Gaiden Games mm. did not make Gary, like, money. And I, I give the, the numbers in, in Game Wizards. Like, right, this is, right, yeah. he's making, like, $400 a year from, like, all the work mm. he was doing for Gaiden Games. Um, wow. And, you know, in today's money, what, it, that's, you know, maybe 4x that at most, right? Yeah, mm. yeah, sorry. But, you know, once we get past that first part, then there's three mm. further parts. And these further parts are just annual chapters. They go through mm. and treat each year between 1975 and 1985 as a game turn. And so at right. the end of every chapter, there's a turn results that shows like how much money TSR made, uh, how many employees yeah. they had, how right, well right. they're doing compared to other people in the industry. And like, so it really covers that initial period and then right up to uh, the ouster. And it has like right. a little epilogue at the end that kind of looks mm -hmm. ahead a bit, but. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so that goes up to 85. What, what would you say might be some of the sort of biggest surprises for someone reading the book, especially compared to the sort of common mythology, mm. the, common, the common story that most people think they know when yeah. they read your book? What, what are the sort of big takeaways where people might be surprised and it really wasn't like what people think it was. Yeah, I guess. What, what was the thing that surprised you most, really? Yeah. Probably the thing that surprised me most was just how much money Arneson was making from D&D before the settlement, before in right. 1981. You know, I mean, we've had this, hmm. this kind of mythology about Arneson that, okay, you know, he was locked out of the company at the end of 1976. And mm. after that, they stopped paying him royalties. Or there's a right. couple of versions of this that go around. You know, one is that, mm. well, they were paying him royalties for the original uh, white boxes, right? Mm. Uh, that were mm. still being sold, but their sales were plummeting. And, you know, the AD&D sales were rising and he wasn't getting any money for AD&D. Now, mm. both those things are true, but what they obscure is how much money he got from the basic set. Right, and right. like the amount, the sheer amount of money right before the settlement that he was making from the basics at, I mean, you know, in today's money, it's like a half a million dollars a year. Wow. Ooh. Wow. And so he wasn't, you know, he's not like living in a garret. That's, that's kind <laughs> of like, uh, you know, the yeah, perception yeah. of this is that, oh my God, he got cut, cut out of this. And, and the, the moral or ethical or, you know, just, just kind of how, how fair it is to slice up the pie sort of question about that mm. in terms of what, mm. how much should he have been compensated for his contribution? That's a hard one for me to answer. I don't even really try to answer it. I just no, no, really no, no, show no. this is, this is the data. This is, yeah. this is what happened. Yeah. 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 So, no. Sorry, Peter, were you? No, I'm just like. Impressed. I, I, I would have already made a fair bit of money, but half a million dollars, is that like 1970, 1980 money? No, no. I said it in, so in, in 1980 money, it was uh, like 130,000. Oh, that comes right, out to yeah. maybe 450 at the moment. Yeah. Um, so I mean, but, it, yeah. But, yeah, but it's still like not mm. to be sneezed at. Yeah, it, it's not an amount of money that anyone else in the game industry was making other than Gary Gygax. I mean, not, it's, many it's, not many people are making that now. I no, goodness. <laughs> I mean, you know, a, a TSR employee would make, if, you know, starting $10,000 a year, mm, you know, yeah. very senior people would be making like 20 or 25. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, this is an amount of money that is, you know, 130000 is like far in excess of what right, you yeah, would yeah. be making if you actually worked there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How would you characterize like how the company was run between say seventy four and eighty five? 
Coralie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you asked for us. You asked a question for us. You asked a question. It's fair. It's fair. <laughs> I mean, so, so, fair answer, yeah. <laughs> let, let, let me let me like, unpack that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think Gary did an amazing job in the early years when this really was more of a hobby than yeah. like an industry. His networking yeah. abilities, the way that he ran Gen Con, the way that he managed, you know, zines and things like that. Mm. He had a real gift for getting the hobby where he wanted it to be. Right. I think the so problem... He's a, he's a really good small businessman sort of thing. It's not even that. It's just that his 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 sheer kind of hobby charisma and cred really enabled him right. to, mm. like, be a very key influencer, you know? And, and I, I think he was very good at development of games in the sense mm. of he was someone who, if, he, if someone had a good idea, say Dave Arneson, you know, he could kind of take <laughs> that idea and turn it into a, a product that people right, could right. at least understand. And right. like yeah. um, th- that in the level of the industry at the time, that was a rare talent. Mm. Yeah. Decoding someone's basically homebrew no- notes and putting them into like a marketable thing, that was where a lot of his abilities lay. Is that fair? Yeah. And I mean, you know, yeah, he okay. and he could like kind of run the business. I mean, he, he mm. could kind of charismatically recruit gamers to work for him mm. for very little money. And right. like, you know, just for the thrill of being a part of D&D. And like, that's, mm. that's, that's an important skill. But I think really after the Egbert incident, after 1979, when the when James Dalzak III was putatively lost in the steam tunnels, um, you mm. know, beneath uh, the Michigan State mm. University, yeah. and this became this started to become a real business. Um, mm. You know, this was now you know something quadrupling or doubling in revenue year over year. Mm. Um, they were hiring hundreds of people. They had many layers of management. Like uh, Gygax had no experience studying this, no training for it. You know, no. he largely, I mean, I think the picture that Game Wizards paints, it's not a terribly flattering one. I mean, he really refused to relinquish control and yet, no. you know, at the same time, refused to step mm. down. Right. And yeah. like that. It, it, it was a massive increase in organization. And that is a very painful and difficult step for any organization to negotiate, though. So, mm. And so by, yeah. after that, things kind of went south pretty quick. Like, you know, I think by 1981, there were real systemic problems. And, you know, Gary wore his heart on his sleeve about it. I mean, he wrote this this amazing piece that I reference in Game Wizards um, that was called Who Am I? That was he published mm. in the Space Gamer. And this is mm. an article that's entirely about, like, what do I want out of life? Do I want to be a business executive? Do I want to mm. be a game designer? Do I want to be a game player? And you really, you see the struggle that he had yeah. by that point. And of course, by that point, he was also rich. And so, you know, he, he, he um, that, 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 you know, added a lot to his calculus and yeah. you know, his mother very suddenly passed away in 1980 and that was a, a big deal for him. And so, you know, after that, a lot of different people had different remits within TSR. The Bloom brothers, right, were elevated to all be kind of co-presidents with him. And uh, not, they also certainly lacked the, the training to manage mm. an organization of this size. And mm. the company was just out of control by 1982, right, yeah, out yeah, of control. Yeah. I think uh, you, you say that there's this kind of slightly existential crisis where you think, who am I? What do I want to do in terms of this, this career? And I don't, I don't think that's unusual. I think uh, no. I, I certainly feel it. And I think from a lot of small publishers in the game industry, I think it's, uh, it's something they have to deal with as as they grow and it mm. is it is difficult and um 
you know, I, if 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 I found myself in that situation, I don't think I could have done any better. I mean, mm. to be honest. I, yep. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, this, really is, this is the guy who you know, as we all know, didn't graduate from high school, right? Who mm-hmm. you know, he he'd had some training and insurance and things like that. He'd taken some yeah. night classes, but you know, he um, could 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 really how, how much better could he have done? Right. right. Um, yeah, yeah. And th- this is not a business where you can go find some playbook on how do you run a games mm. business. There was no hobby games business this size. Like Avalon Hill, they dwarfed them by 1980. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They were the biggest company in this. They, they were about half of the hobby games industry by yeah. 1981. Right. Really. And there was just no. Yeah. What What are you supposed to do? Yeah, like that's that, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess you're you're not just learning; you're writing the rules as you go when yeah. you're when you're in that position, aren't you? I mean, I suppose mm. you know you can you can bring in outside experts at running business, which I guess is exactly what exactly what they did. But you know, we all know that didn't quite work out in the way that he planned. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, originally it was the banks, right? I mean, they yeah. they started borrowing a lot of money, and the banks mm. basically directed them: you need to work with. A, a professional with an industrial psychologist who's yeah, going to help yeah. you reorganize the company. And this guy went mm. out, recruited outside directors who would sit mm. on the board of directors with Gary mm. and Brian and, and uh, yeah. Kevin and like, you know, help them understand what businesses that have overextended need to do. Mm. And the, the problem is just, you know, even Kevin Bloom, I mean, Kevin gets a pretty bad rap, I think as well in the mythology I mean, you know, this is a company he'd worked for since 1976 that he had mm. seen grow from that acorn into yeah, what it yeah. was by 1983. And mm. he was the one who ended up having to wield the axe to cut all those mm. hundreds of people. You know, they mm. were at nearly 400 people, you know, by midpoint of 1983 when things really, it became clear that the bank was going to force them to cut. The bank yeah, said, you, you have to cut 30% or we won't advance you any more money. Mm. And wow. like, you know, he managed to run that process for more than a year where all he presided over was just how, how, what can we get rid of? Who can we get mm. rid of? What parts of this can oh, we wow. shed? And even he didn't have the stomach at the end to do the things that really, the hard cuts. Yeah, at which point yeah. the bank just put this other guy, this guy, Richard Canings, who was, you know, reporting to Kevin and basically had boxed him out um, from decisions and made him CEO. And that guy... He implemented salary deferments. He like, you, oh. sorry, we can't pay you anymore. We'll pay you <laughs> yeah. later when, when the company feels better. Which um, <laughs> when and if wow. <laughs> the company right, feels yeah. better. So um, yeah, I mean, like yeah. it was rough, and uh, yeah. n- none of these people had anything like the training necessary to, to mm. navigate it. And ultimately, mm. you know, they ended up in a situation where an outsider taking control was the only thing that was going to keep the company alive. Right, yeah. 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 So I mean thirty percent cuts, that's like hundred and twenty people. Yeah. Having to do hundred and twenty yeah. firings of people that you're probably gonna that people that are basically like you, that you really like, that's oh yeah. It's gonna be hard, hard, hard business. Yeah. Yeah. So um Gary obviously famously lost control of the company and was ousted eventually. How did that come about? What was the what was the situation there? situation there was that you know as we all know gary was super interested in hollywood um mm. the you know he mm. thought that getting um a big dnd movie a lot of dnd media properties dnd tv shows he was even looking at things like theme parks um you know yeah. things mm. that are more like a major uh transmedia entertainment brand that this yeah. was what mm. was gonna reverse tsr's fortunes now this is this wasn't a crazy plan 
right? Like that. You I mean, know, companies do that. All, yeah, companies do that all the We've time. We've got now. a D&D yeah. movie coming out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, he got that. That of course, the kids show, right? Uh, working mm. around that time. Yeah. And so, I mean, he he became really focused on those efforts and spent a lot of his time in California. He was still chairman of the board of the company, but he was really no longer involved in day to day operations. Mm. But, you know, by the time um, this Canings guy had come in and mm. cut the company down, TSR was at a point where they couldn't even really pay Gary the royalties that they owed him, mm. right? Like, they didn't have the cash on hand. And so he was just accumulating IOUs. And, like, what he did in March of 1985 is he cashed some of those IOUs for stock, for this, this stock option that he'd actually held since 1976, Mm-hmm. that um, in, entitled him to buy 700 shares in the company. Right, right, yeah. And when he basically said, so I'll forgive $70,000 of your debt to me in exchange mm-hmm. for, you know, the exercising of that option. And it was going to expire in 1986 anyway. So he he had, it was a move it or lose it time. The company yeah. was on its last legs, maybe. And like, right, it, you mm-hmm. know, he figured maybe I can try to fix it. And yeah. by the time mm-hmm. he came back, there were only 95 people working for the company. When he took over. So a lot of the overhead that had previously, you know, made them unprofitable was mm. now gone. Yeah. And so there was a real opportunity, right, for the yeah. company to get turned around. Now, in order to get to that point, um, unfortunately, in 1985, they needed to deal with a lot of unsecured creditors. They ended up taking mm. a loss so bad they had to suppress it. It was a $3.8 million loss, a mm. loss that if people in the industry knew um, they would mm. lose their 60-day terms with like vendors, you know, to pay them, and they'd be out of business. Period. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Much like in later in the 90s when you know TSR could like no longer print Dragon and things like that, right? Yes. Mm. Like so, I mean, he did that, and mm-hmm. you know, the issue really was that, like by the time he took over, the blooms had already been removed by this Canings guy. He he fired them, and you know, they needed to negotiate uh, their own exit from the company. Mm. And if they own a lot of the shares, right, they were for the, the long time, they basically had controlling interest for mm. a lot of the time that Gary was there. You know, it, it was often like 49.1% or whatever, but there were, there were all these different ways that actually they had access to more shares that they could vote if they needed, if it yeah. really came down to it. So, you know, with that big a stake, they had to sign a severance that was going to be agreeable to them to leave the company. And that severance was predicated on them selling their shares to somebody. Mm. They tried mm. to sell them mm. to TSR. The bank blocked TSR from purchasing them because of TSR's, it would, you know, cost too much money. It'd be like a half a million dollars to buy them out. Wow. TSR did not have that kind of money. Right. No, no. And then there was this moment when, you know, uh, it's disputed. Uh, there was a room, yeah. and actually Game Wizards paints the scene kind of vividly. It's a, a solarium is what they called it. It's like a kind of second floor room in an office building in Wisconsin where, uh, you know, it's all windows, right? And yeah, you can, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. where Gary met alone with Kevin and Brian. And some kind of promise was made. Um, it, you know, what, what Kevin and Brian said is that Gary promised to buy their shares. Mm. Oh. And um, what, Kev, what, what uh, Gary said, no, it wasn't quite that. I said, I will do my best to find a consortium of people who are interested in purchasing your stake. And like they, so they, they walked out of that room, I guess, with a different impression of what happened. But ultimately, right, right, yeah. when their shares were not bought by Gary, the Blooms got very agitated and mm, like mm. started complaining to TSR a lot about it. Mm-hmm. And this was really the moment when um, Lorraine Williams said, well, I should buy their shares. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Which, which makes sense because they need to be out 
and someone's got to buy these shares. So yeah, mm. and that's all because and that because of the various options that gave her the controlling um, stock. Ultimately, it shares. did. Is that right? Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. the combination. So Brian actually had a, a, a sibling option to the one that Gary had exercised in March that ah, also okay. would entitle him to a further 700 shares. Right, and right, so right. ultimately, you know, Lorraine paid to have those shares exercised, bought those shares, mm-hmm. and then the, you know, all the shares that the Bloom family held separately. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. aggregate of that effectively gave her controlling interest. Control yes. of the company, yeah. 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 But, but, but essentially, at this point, she's pouring a huge amount of money into this um, company. Uh, over, we know it's at least over half a million dollars, because you said earlier that TSL didn't have that sort of money to buy them out. Is that about right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. we go into the actual mechanics in the book. I mean, what, what she did, and this is very common in deals like this, is um, the, the shares were put, the Bloom family shares were put into an escrow, and the rain agreed mm-hmm. to pay it out in installments with interest. So yeah. practically speaking, you know, the money she d- gave them in 1985 amounted to something around 200000 but yeah. over the, the course of then the next several years, uh, she would pay the rest of it. Yeah, but it's still an incredible amount of money that this woman is throwing at this company based on the belief that it's going to do well, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think she did believe. You know, She was a strong yeah. believer in um, the media properties, the kinds of things mm. that Gary was pursuing, but much more in the publishing sh- uh, side of things, right? She liked things like Dragonlands. And, you mm. know, she went, yeah. once she took over, she found Jeff Grubb, shook him by the lapels, and was like, <laughs> find me another Dragonlands. And Jeff Grubb said, well, there's this weird guy in Canada who's been sending us this stuff to Dragon Magazine, and it's about this, like, you know, uh, world of Toril, and there's, like, this, like, Sword Coast, and there's Waterdeep, and there's this, and he says he's got tens of thousands of pages of this stuff, and Lorraine's like, yeah, let's let's do that. Hence, yeah. Yeah, right. the Forgotten Realms. Oh, I'll never catch on. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll never catch on. <laughs> yeah. So, it's, it's often, like, um, gamers often talk about like between Gygax and Arneson who really created D&D and there is there's kind of various different stories or different not stories but opinions from, from your point of view who who would you say was the primary creator of D&D and who 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 did what how did that relationship work yeah so I've towed the same line on this since playing at the world came out which is that yeah. they're co-creators that it would be impossible for it to have come together without both of their contributions period right. yeah. how, now yeah. I can, how, how do you unbake an omelet sort of thing yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean I can unpack, unpack that and actually I think uh, you know I, I wrote a blog post uh, just like yesterday or something about this that I think you actually put put up on uh, Ian world right, right that talks about like kind of it, when you really get into the nitty-gritty, when you get into things like how hit points work, sure, there, there was a vision that Arneson had for how characters should have hit points. They should have a fixed set of starting hit points, and when they go yeah, up a level... You, yeah, you, yeah you, just, you, your latest article talks yeah, about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, you shouldn't gain more hit points as you go up in level. And mm. Gary didn't like that. And right, so right. Gary did a system instead where when you go up in level, you get hit points. And mm. ultimately, because Gary held the pen, Right. This is the situation, right? Like Arneson describes it as he's providing ideas and concepts, but not mm. having much say in how they were actually used. Right, right. You know, I mean, but but Gary is like riffing off all these things that Arneson, you know, had originally conceived for this. And I mean, there's mm. just no question that it wouldn't have come, it, this game wouldn't have existed without Blackmore and without mm. the things mm. that Arneson had, had origi- originally sketched for this. But, you know, Gary and I show this when, you know, I look at the development of earlier games like Don't Give Up the Ship, right? When, when Gary felt like he was holding the pen, 
You know, there was some point on Don't Give Up the Ship where Mike Carr didn't like something that Gary had done to the rules that Carr had added. And Gary was like, look, I'm, I'm the editor of like the Gaiden Games miniature series. And if Mike Carr doesn't like it, he can like go pound sand, right? right. Like, I'm going I'm to do this the way right. I want. And okay. he was very much that way towards Arneson on D&D. He, mm. he, he was like pound sand and infuriated Arneson. You know, mm. um, Arneson, as early as 1974, this is in this, this article that I was just talking about, is writing to fanzines, not just any fanzines, but the ones where Gary was kind of sharing what was going to be in the Greyhawk supplement, like previewing, beta mm. testing. This is where, like, mm. the Thief class was originally published, right? Yeah, where yeah, yeah. You yeah. first see percentile strength and things, all these things mm. that appeared in Greyhawk. You know, Arneson actually wanted a letter of his to be published there saying, hit points are wrong right like mm. this is how they're supposed mm. to you know and gary just you know there, there were all these mix-ups and communication breakdowns and <laughs> you know <laughs> errors and things like that in D. yeah and so i mean you know i look at it as a collaboration it wasn't a friendly one but some of the best collaborations aren't right. to be blunt right. that's all the sort of emotional energy really sparks creativity, sort of. Thing. Was it a, a collaboration that was unfriendly from the start, or did it? St- or you know, how long was it before the before the relationship started to break down? I mean, it, it, when I say unfriendly from the start, so I mean there there were so many factors, and when we get it unfriendly, they were friends. Or they, yeah. they, they were mm. they were friendly colleagues is probably the way to describe them. It's not right, like they're right. letters; they're at each other's throats, right? Um, no. there, there are some where they're close close to it, though. But I mean, you you already see it. Very early on that Gary is frustrated that Arneson, when he's sending in rules that for D and D that and I, I won't I'll paraphrase the quote, I'm not not gonna get it exactly right, but okay. he's mad that he, he isn't making these rules mesh with our, you know, TSR at the time LGTSA, the his little his little club, with our LGTSA rules as plagiarized from Blackmore as drawn from Chainmail, right? Like <laughs> can't can't you make this mesh with us more? Yeah. And it's, you know, that, that kind of lack of mesh, that friction, that difference of vision mm. is the kind of thing that can actually spark a lot of creativity. Like I do some of my best work reacting against stuff I don't like. Mm. You know, if yes. I see yeah. something, I'm like, you know, yeah, we go back to how the ambush of Sheridan's rings happened, right? I mean, yeah. I, I wouldn't bother yeah. to write the piece if I wasn't aware that Gary had been saying things for years that just don't check mm. out against right, right. his court, mm. his own court testimony, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, you say things like Gary's saying things that don't check out. Would you put that down more to memory or spin or how? I mean, <laughs> I, I blame I blame a lot of things for this, a lot of factors for this actually. But one of the main things I blame is people like me, and I'll I'll, right. I'll explain that a bit. Like, I think when you get when you make something that matters to people, that people have the emotional connection to, that D and D has for people. They find you at conventions. They find you on forums. They talk to you about it. They ask you. They make you draw out a story, right? Mm, mm, mm. And the first time that happens, the first time Gary's being asked, you know, how did D&D come about? Like, who really did this and that? That's probably like, you know, Origins 1975, maybe even Gen Con 1974, right? But, you know, just imagine the aggregate effect of decades of fanboys coming up to you and just asking you to explain what what your legacy is, right? And I, right. I, you, you know, I don't want, I don't want to call it spin, but you develop like a, a set of talking it's a points, story. right? Yeah, yeah, you develop a story, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and and you hone that story, and and 
you know, sometimes you hear other other people saying something else, and yeah. you you make you, you your incorporate that into story. Yeah. Right. yeah, or or, or, or maybe Gary Gygax was ultimately a GM, right? Yes, exactly. and GMs love telling stories. Yes, exactly. And a, a good story has to be satisfying. It has to be simple. It has to make narrative sense. Yeah. Good guys, bad guys, and would you say that maybe influenced what what happened? I did. Because real life is quite messy. Yeah. Real life is quite messy. That's, that's one of the things I say at the very tail end of Game Wizards in the yeah, last yeah. Uh, line yeah. epilogue to it. I mean, the way I, I look at it, too, I mean, when you talk about spin or how, how people mythologize themselves, corporations love corporate origin stories, right? Mm. They, mm. they use them as marketing literature. Yeah. And so okay. think about it like, for example, yeah. Like TSR, you know, had to develop this, you know, kind of two paragraph story about the, the humble cobbler. Right, who who was toiling in his basement in Lake right, Geneva, yeah. who who you know staked everything on the impossible dream that he would like make it as a game designer and like you know and when you have to say that in front of audiences, in front of mm. potential shareholders, in front of people who are borrowing mm. money from, in front of people in Hollywood, because that's the line you've got to sell. Mm. Like yeah, you internalize some of that narrative, and it, it's it's part of our corporate and industrial process as well. Yeah, that you do, yeah. and even similarly, I mean, I think Arneson internalized this like martyr narrative that like I was the guy mm. who got screwed, mm. and that that narrative yeah. is also it's a commercial narrative. This is a narrative that you know is getting him opportunities to work with Mayfair mm. and Chaosium, and you know, and they love that story too because they hope to compete mm. with TSR. Yeah, so they, yeah, they want yeah. to amplify that story to paint TSR and D&D as bad actors mm. in order to mm. improve the sales prospects for you know products that are directly yeah, competing with yeah. that. So it's like all these yeah. like business incentives that if mm. you if you don't see them and you look at these things instead like this is people speaking from their memory like you know this is mm. why I wrote game wizards it was really yeah. to expose all mm. of this it's in its you know, it's a train wreck of a story in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. It's not yeah. a happy story, but to no, kind of expose and complex, yeah, yeah. what all those um, largely business incentives were that mm. created the mythologies of these people. Mm. And it's, it's why mm. the cover has caricatures, has miniatures of Gary and Dave. Yes, them, yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, yeah, I love that like, cover. It's, can you yeah. get those miniatures? Are they? <laughs> you can. <laughs> can you? absolutely can. Ooh. Right where I am here at, at, at GameholeCon, uh, Jim Wobbler. Yes who yeah. people may mm-hmm. know from Marvin the Mage, you know, from Mud Puppy, uh, Mud Puppy Comics and Games. He made those for me, and I actually right. made sure he could retain the rights to produce those. Ooh, as many wow. as they are for sale here, they will be for sale online. Um, please use them to represent the NPCs of your choice. In your I will game. absolutely be getting these finishes. <laughs> uh, Bob, there you go, Jim Wampler. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to go back to sort of some of the sources that you use because, um, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, your your work is meticulously researched. And um, we started this conversation, you were talking about how you started by going down to the courthouse and copying a whole bunch of documents. Can you just sort of like speak a little bit to the various sort of sources, magazine articles, letters, you know, what... What, what, does that, what does that look like from your point of view? Is it big boxes full of letters? And I mean, so I've had the um, privilege to work with a lot of people who were either at TSR yeah. or who were very close to the principals who retain this material. And I've spent, you know, again, it's been seven years since Ambush at Sheridan Springs acquiring what of that material I could. Yeah. Um, from people that, you know, is now part of my own archive and collection. But make no mistake, I mean, this is something that draws on a great many people's holdings of this stuff who are very generous to me in letting me be able to go through and study it to give 
just a couple of examples of who those people are. Um, Merle Rasmussen, who, of, of course, we know from designing uh, the game Top Secret. Right. You know, Merle only worked at TSR from maybe, you know, 1981, 84 mm-hmm. or so. Maybe, maybe even 82 is when he came in. Um, and he had done previously Top Secret as a freelancer. But in real life, he is a corporate archivist. And he saves right. everything. And he puts everything in binders. He puts everything in mylar and in order. And like, if you can just work Ooh. from his binders, you can see like <laughs> all the memos, all the correspondence he got, everything he ever got from Gary, from Mike Carr, from blah, 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 every memo, every this, that, and the other thing. So, so he he was a very popular person with you. I tell you, he was a very popular person with me. You know, but yeah. but you know, to take another example, uh, Steve Marsh. Mm-hmm. You know, Steve Marsh is someone who really only worked briefly, like at TSR as such. Of course, mm-hmm. he worked on um, the expert set with uh, with Zeb. But he had this longstanding correspondence with Gary, and in fact, a lot of the um, aquatic monsters that appear in the original Blackmore supplement, like the Sahuagans, like things like that, yeah. those mm. those came from him. Um, those are things mm. he sent in that ended up getting incorporated. So very early on, he had this kind of communication channel with him, and for some reason, I don't know what it is, Gary just speaks to Steve Marsh in correspondence with greater candor than mm. anyone else I can think. I, I think Gary just felt a personal connection right, right. to Marsh. Mm. And you'll see Marsh's letters, uh, letters from Gary to Marsh referenced very frequently mm. um, throughout this. And, you know, some of those letters um, have gone up on eBay and, you know, have ended up in various people's hands, a couple in mine. Um, my good friend, Bill Meinhardt, who's one of the great collectors, maybe the foremost collector of DD material, um, mm. you know, he gave me access to a bunch of those and Steve Marsh personally gave me access to some others. So, I mean, you know, yeah, you, you, you cobble this together from what you can, right? Mm. You, you just, and you play this enormous game of, uh, your concentration, you know, the card game where you have to make connections. Oh yeah yeah, your, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, where you just say, oh wait, like this thing here, this must mean that this happened then. Yeah. Let's look at this right. other letter here and like. And so that, that's that's how I do it. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. I mean, it sounds like... Primary a, source material. Yeah, it nice. sounds like a lot no. of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you think? Do you no, think? I, I, I could never do <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I try to make it look easy. I try to make it look like it's just effortless and that I don't think, I don't think you make obvious. it look easy. I think, you, I think the, the work that you've done mm. shows. I mean, it really does show how much research you've done and, you know... Yeah. It's, it's, you know, I don't think anyone would, would, read, would read your work and think this looks easy. Yeah, I mean, is this sort of your background doing um, history, I guess? No, no, I don't have any special qualification to do this. It just, yeah. I got I got interested in it in 2005. It, yeah. 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 It's, it's sort of an amusing point that I just wanted to touch on um, briefly. It's uh, yeah. to do with sort of some of Gygax's influences. And hmm. we all know that in earlier editions of the game, um, there were some Tolkien references like Ents and Barrowogs and Halflings and things like that actually in the game and later on in life he would claim quite clearly at times that uh lord of the rings and tolkien were had very very little influence on that game which seems to seems to stand in contrast <laughs> to the fact that he put put those things in the game <laughs> i mean how, how, how would you reconcile those two things did he really say that? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he said that a lot. He, did. he said that a lot. Uh, but I think there was, there was either a lawsuit or some kind of something from the Tolkien's, which maybe changed his, changed his narrative on the... I don't know. How would, how would you... 
Uh, yeah, I see. I see. This is a kind of messy one, actually. So, of course, there was a lawsuit in 1977, mm. and this was actually yeah. over um, the Battle of the Five Armies, which right. was a board mm. game that TSR was mm. putting out at the time. And at the time, um, there was a Hobbit uh, made-for-TV movie, an animated one, that yeah. was coming out. Yeah, and the, the Ralph Bakshi one. Do you mean? Or, yeah, yeah. yeah, this is the Rankin Bass, I believe, uh, one. Oh. But like, mm. they are all licensed up to Saul Zanes, the same company that owned the mm-hmm. non-literary rights, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. These adaptations of Tolkien. And you know, mm. when that was coming out, the the Hobbit thing, they went after a whole bunch of people who made miniature figures, right, based on the mm. Hobbit without a license. And mm. they found Battle of the Five Armies. They sued TSR. Basically, I, I discussed the terms of that a bit in Game Wizards of how that got mm. resolved. But it was really uh, when they then started looking through the rest of TSR's products, they were mm. like, oh, mm. this stuff in D&D, you can't yeah. use that. But, yeah. I mean, when you go all the way back to 1974, Gary did have this chip on his shoulder about Tolkien. He, he, mm. he loved that Tolkien had made fantasy so popular in the 60s, because fantasy wasn't really super popular right before yeah. the mid-1960s, at least in the United States. In the UK, it was a little bit more popular, um, but, you know, also derided by, by many, right? right. And it's childish. Yeah. I mean, there were a few great defenders of it, W.H. Auden, you know, I think, you know, was uh, a, I mean, yeah, that, that was very much the case up until, like, the early 2000s and later. Yeah. And you can still find people who will happily deride it now. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. Um, yeah. but, but I mean, Gary really thought that the kind of adventure stories that he was telling yeah. in D&D were more like Fritz Leiber's stories, right? Mm. Like Bafford and the Gray Mauser mm. were more okay. like Edgar yeah. Rice Burroughs, you know, Mars novels, um, things like that. Mm-hmm. Some of the Elsbrog de Camp, like when you really look at like, um, you know, against the giants at G1 to G3 and compare mm. that to mm. some of the ways that, uh, de Camp and Pratt adapted Harold mm. Shea going into Norse mythology, you, you, yes. I think you can see some, yeah. some parallels. And, you mm. know, what, what chafed him about Tolkien is he would say, he would, ha- he would write something about, like, trolls. And people would come mm. to him and say, oh, you're wrong. Like, Tolkien yeah. said the trolls are like this, 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 right, and this. Right, right, right. And he's like, yeah. well, my trolls aren't Tolkien's trolls. I'm writing yeah. the trolls from uh, Paul Anderson, yeah. right? Yeah. And, like, so uh, I think it was that originally it, that, you mm. know, chafed him. And so he did write a number of pieces where he's like, look, there's, yeah, Tolkien's out there, and I'm, I'm grateful to him for popularizing this. Mm. But he's not the ultimate authority. And like, mm, you know, yeah. this, the, okay. D, the fantasy of D&D is different than, um, you know, Tolkien's vision for it was. So mm. that, that's oh, a little messy. Of course, the lawsuit yeah. also complicated this, but it wasn't just that. This was yeah, even before yeah. that. He already was kind of, I mean, again, he, he felt about it the way maybe Arneson felt about Gygax being treated as an authority on D&D. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, okay, yeah. <laughs> what makes to- what makes Tolkien a better authority on what trolls are than I am? Well, yeah, I mean, it's also mm. temporarily. I mean, we 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 think you know, Lord of the Rings was written back in the mid um, mid twentieth century, which seems like a mm. really really long time ago. But if you think about it from Gygax's point of view, it was fair. It was a fairly recent thing. Sure. So you know, they were they were they were a lot closer in time than than perhaps mm. you realize. Yeah, I mean, uh, so these paperback editions, the original pirate paperbacks, I mean, they they came out in the United States and sold well in like 65 to 66, right? And think, you know, chain mail is 71. Yeah, right. So when he's first starting yeah, to incorporate yeah, this stuff, yeah. so yeah, it was it's immediate yeah. history to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we do have to wind up now. I just wanted to yes. say thank you so much for coming on. It's been a real oh, pleasure. Yeah. I'd love to actually have you on again and go into some more of this in more detail because we kind of it's one of those topics that I think you could talk about for hours. 
and there's so mm. much to cover and just to fit it mm. into sort of like an hour's discussion on a podcast you run out of time quite quickly so if you're if you're happy to do that we'd love to have you on again because well, I've my got, pleasure I've to got be here. more things to ask definitely definitely no it's yeah. my pleasure to be here and I mean um, you know I've always loved what you've been doing um, on Ian World and thank so you, on and you. it's a privilege to be invited I'd be happy to come back thank you that's that's fantastic thank you yeah. no thank you so much it's been yeah. it's been a real pleasure I'm really glad to meet you finally yeah. as well yeah definitely like I, like, like I said earlier yeah. it's like I've known about you for years and we've kind <laughs> of like seen each other on Facebook and stuff but um, it's the first time I've actually had a chance to actually talk to you well I mean let's hang out sometime <laughs> informally let's just set up a Zoom and chat sometime about whatever off the yeah, record if you good. want yeah yeah bye bye thank you for coming bye bye Apparently, I now have to read this to you. This is the official podcast of Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG news, which you can find at enworld.org. You can find show notes at morris.podbean.com or wherever you found the podcast. If you feel like they deserve it, you can support the show on Patreon. In return, you will receive exclusive bonus content. Just go to patreon.com slash Morris. If you're interested in his babbling nonsense, you can follow at Morris on the Twitter. Send your emails to morrispodcast at gmail.com. Not all of your emails, just the ones you want us to see. That's it. I'm bored now. You can go away. Shoo, off you go. Goodbye. Get out of here. <laughs> and then pretend we've done some news and then I need to introduce yeah okay this works it work no one will be able to tell <laughs> the amazing seamless editor oh yeah absolutely seamless draw that one and leave a bit soon I sound digitally was cursing right now <laughs>